So saving Daniel from the beast is not about the lion's den. <laughs> so this is what I'm supposed to say today, right? <coughs> Daniel 1 is about dietary concerns, and Daniel passes the test of temperance and appetite. <laughs> Daniel 2 is about the great image. <laughs> Daniel 3 is about the three brave Hebrews who went into the kill. Daniel 4 is about Nebuchadnezzar's fall from pride to insanity. Daniel 5 is about the feast of Belshazzar and the writing on the wall. Daniel 6 is about how God saved him from the lion's death. Daniel 7 is about the four beasts and about the Son of Man coming into power. Daniel 8 is about the ram and the goat and the 23-day prophecy. Daniel 9 is about Daniel's prayer in the 70 weeks. Daniel 10 is about the heavenly conflict that only Michael can resolve. Daniel 11 is about a battle covering many centuries between the king of the north and the king of the south and the time of the end. Daniel 12 is about the time of trouble and some prophecies regarding two times and half a time and 290 days. That we've never been able to figure out. Now, the reason I have for that small font is these are the things we do not emphasize. We emphasize the beast. That's why I called it saving Daniel from the beast. I'm saving the book of Daniel. From the beast, I hope. So I'm going to talk about the scientific Daniel first. It's chapter one. Because there's something that some things we don't know as we read the chapter that have to do with ancient Babylonian culture that Daniel is now part of. Uh, some modern ancient Near Eastern scholars believe that Sumer and Babylonians were the first to engage in science. And you wouldn't believe where that science was. Oh, part of it was naming plants and animals. They kept, lists, they kept lists of plants and animals. So part of it was that. Part of it, though, a lot of part, larger part of it, had to do with divination. Well, okay, science, what? Divination being science? Well, there was scientific reasoning behind it. It's true their assumptions were way off. Namely, that the gods wrote messages on the entrails of sheep, or in dreams, or in uh, the planetary bodies. Uh, and, and so if there was an eclipse of the, of the sun, it meant that the king, the gods were angry with the king, and they were going to seek his downfall. Uh, this kind of thing was part of divination. So I, I list the different kinds of divination there. Identification of different elements in the natural world, astronomy and astrology, time and measures. And I'm not sure how to pronounce this, I meant to look it up. But anyway, that first word has to do with dreams. Uh, ecstasy and other kinds of divination, deductive reason. So you do know the second word? <laughs> we will talk about dreams, yes. No, this was the second Extrispacy. Oh, that one is uh, has to deliver divination. Oh, uh, years ago, Andrews University collaborated with someone else to put out a model of a liver that they found. Uh, they, they didn't find an actual liver, but they found an image of a liver and with all kinds of inscriptions on it to show you how to read a liver. <laughs> And I wanted, the, I wanted the worst way. I was, I was working on my doctorate. I didn't have much money. Still don't, but <laughs> uh, I was working on my doctorate, and I wanted the worst way to get that model, but it was expensive. And then now it's no longer available. So, uh, But that's ecstasy. In Babylonia, Daniel would have been a scholar in the sciences of divinatory interpretation. Now, let me introduce you to the scholars of the king. The scholars of the king were his closest advisors. They were the ones that were constantly looking out for the king, making sure that the gods were happy with the king, making sure that there were any pending omens that were, would ensure the king's downfall, that he was duly warned, and making sure that he was choosing at the right time to go to conquest, at the right time to take on uh, any encroachments to his... Uh, uh, treaties that he had established with other nations, uh, all of that. They were responsible for that. So you had scribes, forward slash astrologers, Erasmus, 
uh, and I don't remember what that is, but diviners, I think it's a, a scientific term for diviners, exorcists, magicians, and physicians. Uh, so these were the scholars of the king, and they were his closest advisors, and they held his secrets. They would not let those secrets out. So the background behind Daniel's first story, the royal diet was largely flesh due to the fact that after, that the many sacrifices, or after the many sacrificial animals had been slaughtered from Marduk, and after Marduk had eaten them, I put eaten them in quotes, but they believed that he ate them, <laughs> the rest of the offerings went to the royal house. So if you read Val and the Dragon, it's kind of funny. Uh, Val and the Dragon is an apocryphal work where Daniel informs uh, the king that the priests are eating the sacrifices before they get to him, or, or something like that. And, and the king doesn't believe him, they're not supposed to. Marduk's the only one that's supposed to be eating them. This is through Jewish eyes, you understand? <laughs> that's how they interpreted it, but it's not really how the Babylonians believed it. So, meat seems to have been reserved for the elite and powerful. Most citizens lived happy lives eating largely a vegetarian diet and only occasionally eating meat, often when hosting company or celebrating a festival or special occasion. So consumption of meat was not high in the ancient Near East, but in the royal house it was very high. So just so you have that, that background. So Daniel faces his first problem, which is food. As a member of the royal family of Judah, Daniel would have had a balanced diet of grains, vegetables, fruits, and meat. So he would not have had a great consumption of meat, some consumption, uh, but mostly vegetarian. In the Jerusalem temple, the priests ate parts of some Thanksgiving offerings, such as the grain offering, the sin offering, the cake of Thanksgiving offering. But apparently, the ones bringing in flesh for Thanksgiving ate the flesh on the same day as they brought the offering. And you can understand how easy it would for them to spoil in ancient years during the climate. But there's another issue besides the diet. The fact that the king's flesh diet came from the temples, perhaps predominantly the Isagil, which was Marduk's temple, and he, eating such food indicated belief that Marduk was the patron god of Babylon, something that a Judahite loyal to Yahweh and Jerusalem would not accept. So there's a dual thing going on. Otherwise there's this heavy consumption of meat but there's this thing about swearing allegiance to Marduk instead of God. So they find this out early on, and normally a Babylonian who had a problem with Yahweh, say the roles are reversed, normally the Babylonian would result, would go to a liver divination or some other kind of divination to try to find a solution. Daniel doesn't do this. He uses his head. So it's not something the Babylonians did in crisis. They consulted the omens in crisis. He asked Astrones, the palace master, for a way out. Astrones was afraid that Daniel and his three friends would act dejectedly, dejectedly or seem depressed. This is the ground driver Griggs' interpretation of the Hebrew word. However, in other contexts, the word means to rage or act angrily. So whatever they're worried about is that Daniel will get out of control or, or something bad will happen. We're not eating meat. We're not eating meat. Because he's basically deprived of his right. Yeah. It's partly, partly that he's being deprived and partly that he's not being loyal to Marduk. Daniel proposes a test. In today's reality, the test was a little like a scientific experience, experiment, though greatly simplified and thus inadequate. Daniel suggests that he and his friends eat only vegetables and drink only water for 10 days. It's not a long test, is it? Then he tells Ashwinas to compare the four Hebrews' appearances with those of their colleagues who ate from the royal ration. So we're going to try this out as an experiment. This is an empirical experiment. At the end of 10 days, it was observed that they appeared better and fatter. And this is something we need to digress to explain. In the ancient Near East, including the Hebrew Bible, this fat was a sign of divine blessing. If you were skinny, you were unhealthy, and you were being deprived. <laughs> 
so they were fatter than all the young men who had been eating the royal rations, so the guard continued to withdraw their royal rations and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. I, I'll tell you a little story to illustrate why they might be fatter on a vegetarian diet. <clears throat> I had to be on a, an Atkins diet one time, my doctor put me on it. And I ate chicken and eggs and some tofu for a year. I had to read while I ate in order to gag my food down. <laughs> and uh, I got to a place where I didn't lose any more weight. So I went on a vegetarian diet. And I did lose some because I was very strict. But if I had eaten a lot of grains uh, and that sort of thing, I probably would have gained some weight. <laughs> so this word fatter is, is a sign of divine blessing. And he actually gained, apparently gains weight on the vegetarian diet. You can attack that however you will. But the vegetarian diet would include a lot of barley and some wheat. Uh, it's possible. Probably lentils. And probably lentils. Yeah, a lot of sugars. So perhaps this story of how Daniel uses his head in a bit of science to solve the problem sets the background for the difference between Daniel's approach to science and the Babylonian science. And this fits with how Yahweh will appear, especially at the source of Daniel. Now we come to the forgotten dream. This is Daniel 2. Yes. Before you go into this, I have a question about um, it used to be, my understanding used to be that um, sacrifices were the only meats. I mean, the meat had to be sacrificed by the priest in the temple before the people could eat it, and that they were not allowed to kill their own... They weren't allowed to kill their own sacrifices away from the temple, but, but they ate meat apart from the temple. All we have is, is the protocol for how they're to do in, in Leviticus for the temple, for the priests. Yes. Yeah, uh, one teaches vegetarianism. How would you respond to that? Daniel, Daniel 1 teaches vegetarianism. Um, and that's a curious question because they asked to eat only vegetables. Why didn't he also ask for meat? Because the only meat served would have been offered to Marduk. That's my answer for that. So it doesn't really teach vegetarianism because presumably if he does meet someone else, well, and Jews weren't vegetarians. And the Jews weren't vegetarian. So it's, it's just, it's, it's hard for me to visualize that. It's more about idol worship than it is about. I think in terms of Daniel, I think that's the, the focus. Yes, but I wondered sometimes if it's the same thing that Paul was talking about in Colossians. Yeah, it's a similar. Yeah, similar. except Paul is saying, don't worry about it. And Daniel was saying, you know, I'll go to the state before they... Well, and, and keep in mind, this is a different era uh, where this is far more politically difficult. I mean, Yahweh is patron of Jerusalem. Marduk is patron of Babylon. So at the end of the Wisdom Chronicles, one of those kings, it says Jehoiachin ate from the king's table. He didn't worry about it like that. Yeah. But of course, he was the one not so good king. I know, he ran only a few months. Okay, Daniel 2. Nebuchadnezzar, I thought I'd toss in his, his uh, various spellings of his name. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is Aramaic and Nabu Kuduri Utsar. Utsar uh, dreams at night, but the next morning he can't recall his dream. Uh, this sounds like, oh, yeah, well, I went to sleep last night and I dreamed and I don't remember what I dreamed, so what's the big deal? Well, for the king, this was a dreadful calamity because the dream divination was significant in ancient Babylonian. The Babylonian view of divination was, was this. The dream gods would relate written messages in the entrails of sacrificial animals or in dreams of some natural phenomenon that outline divine verdicts. This was, this was court-based thinking. So the gods would, from time to time, sit in court and uh, hand out these verdicts. 
and they were supposed to read them or have a barber priest who was a diviner read them. These verdicts might be positive or they might be negative. If negative, the person receiving the verdict scurried to try to change the God's mind so as to birth the results of the verdict. So to dream a dream is to lose what the gods are trying to tell you. And that's terrible because the gods will not be happy if you lost the information they sent you. So in his terror and anger that the diviners can't tell him what he dreams, he threatens to kill them. Which is, is really means he's off his rocker because that's a really stupid thing to do. But um, he uh, angrily threatens this. And they come to get Daniel for the execution, and he finds out why they were to be slain. He goes to the king and asks for time, and promises that he will tell the king his dream. So he gets the dream the second night, and he tells the dream to the king. At first he assures the king that he did not invent the dream, but there is a God in heaven who has revealed this mystery. He does not say the name of Yahweh. He tells Nebuchadnezzar what he was thinking that night as he dreamed, and now the dream was a revelation about what he was thinking, and then he relates the dream. Now, probably nothing he could tell, or, or nothing he could dream, would get his attention, which is amazing that he forgot it, but he, nothing could get his attention better than an image. What? Images, and image-making was a major thing in Mesopotamia. They made images of the gods, of course, and put them in their temples. They dressed the gods, they did, fed the gods, they even uh, did a mouthwashing ceremony to open the gods' mouth so they become viable and could eat. They believed all this about <laughs> these images. And, uh, but on the, uh, furthermore, the king of ancient Mesopotamia loved to make images of themselves and then they would put these in strategic places, other cities around Babylonia uh, and in their temples before their gods where they reigned. And these statues of the king were considered to be doubles or substitutes of the king. So that whatever you did to the statue, you did to the king. And by placing them elsewhere, he doubled his power, or tripled it, or quadrupled it. Uh, depending on how many places, how many images he had made, and how many places he put them. So the image in Daniel 2 reeks of dominion and power. And that's something we need to highlight. Uh, the beasts are kingdoms, are they not? Later on in Daniel, they reek of dominion and power. Is there, I mean, there's all these references in the Bible to man being the image of God. Is there any relationship at all, or is that just a totally different application of that? The, the key word is in. He's in the image of God. He's not as the image of God. That would be a different proposition. Uh, and that's a key word because, as one commentator pointed out, the king is sometimes in Babylonian referred to as the image of the God. So we would be doubles of the God, of God, if we were in, if we were His image. We would be substitute in ancient Near Eastern understanding. That's how it worked. So we're, the, the Hebrew Bible will never allow us to be gods, except that one song <laughs> that Jesus quotes. Uh, but. Nevertheless, there's a downside to being God's double. You can't think your own thoughts. You can't, you know, you are just the image of God and you think his thoughts and you, you speak his words and you do only what he wants, that he does and you plan only what he plans and so on. You have no autonomy. So to be in the image of God is to keep us from being little gods and keep us also from being from lacking our autonomy. Terror of losing the dream. Well, that, you know, this, we're talking about Bible now. We're not talking about Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Yeah. So the image of God being the representative 
Yes, definitely. In Genesis, Genesis 1, where that verse is found, we're definitely the representative to the natural world. Yeah, and, and then when you see that in the commandments, you know, you should not make any graven image, you should not make a representation of God that's not God. And interestingly, uh, that's a different Hebrew word. Oh, is it? And then there's what about in, in Revelation where it talks about the image of the beast? representation of the beast. It's the same kind of... That's very, you, would have to, you would have to allow me time to look that up in Septuagint. And that is Genesis uh, 1, 26 and 28 in the Septuagint. See what translation they use for image there and versus what translation is found in the Greek in Revelation. So, here's the substances of power and dominion. Kingdom A is represented by gold. In many times, uh, periods of Mesopotamia, gold was the most precious metal because of its scarcity and enduring qualities. The silver of Kingdom B was also precious metal, and sometimes trumped gold in preference. Uh, both gold and silver undergirded economic prosperity in ancient Mesopotamia. Kingdom C was represented by bronze. During the Old Babylonian period, bronze was a utilitarian commodity <laughs> used to make tools, weapons, battle dress, and various household items. And eventually, Kingdom D came to replace the bronze for many items. Clay, part of the Ten Kingdoms, uh, represented Babylon bricks for building and tablets for writing cuneiform. For some reason, I left out iron, didn't I? Is there iron? Oh, eventually iron. Yes, we have the iron one period, which is the period... Uh, uh, getting close to Judges, well, it's in Judges and getting close to Samuel. Uh, that's the Iron Period. Uh, and the thing, the thing that stands out in my mind when I think of the Iron Period in terms of the Hebrews is that they couldn't access iron because the Philistines paid the price so high. So the Philistines had power over them because they had iron tools and iron weapons and iron chariots. I don't know if they had actually had chariots, but when iron came in, they played a huge role in chariot. And that's probably when chariots became not only a conveyance ability, but it became a, a weapon. You ran over the army with the, with the chariots. Uh, we find that out from Assyrian reliefs, uh, where they actually were from that. Now we come to the rock. This is my favorite part. It's actually my favorite part of Daniel, I think. The dream takes a particularly non-Babylonian turn with the rock. Think about it. You have the, all these fancy metals that describe different kingdoms. And then you have a rock. Now, Nebuchadnezzar probably had bad memories of rocks. Mesopotamia Mesopotamia was famous for its alluvial soil that grew excellent crops. But not, there's not many rocks. But the king had been to Judah. Remember, he traveled there to besiege the city. And I imagine he didn't like all those rocks that his chariots had to drive over. There were a zillion rocks or more in Palestine. Palestine is known to have Many, many rocks. Yeah, it's a little, well, it's, it's more than anyone. <laughs> it's worse than anyone. Yeah. Would there have been any concept of asteroids and those kinds of things? Or that no, I don't think so. I haven't had that kind of anything. I have one, I'm not a specialist in astrology or astronomy, <laughs> but I don't think so. How amazed he must have been by this rock in his dream, something alien, not as much from Babylonia and very much a part of the homeland of Yahweh, the God of the Jews. This rock probably resembled any common rock without any economic merit, not particularly useful, lacking in power. In the Aramaic of Daniel 2, the rock is cut out without hands. The Aramaic word to cut out has a sense of divided. And the complete Jewish Bible <coughs> translates this as separated itself. Other translations use the word cut out, chiseled out, or hewn out to honor the intensive sense of the verb. They do not reflect its reflexive element. 
whatever this rock does, it does to itself. That is, it cuts itself, it hews itself, or separates itself from out of the mountain. Mountains in northwest Semitic regions, remember there's, mountains are only at a distance in Babylonia. Okay, Babylonia is a giant plain. Uh, mountains in the northwest Semitic regions represented the abodes of gods and their power. This rock separates itself supernaturally from that power and grows dynamically into a mountain itself. The rock is cut out without hands. It's very important. Some translators insert a word not present in the Aramaic. By the way, this part of Daniel is Aramaic. Human. They say it's not cut out with human without human hands. In both Hebrew and Aramaic, one of the meanings of hand is power. This rock is not cut out without is not cut out with power. And its separation from the mountain is not about power. Now, to me, that is what the text is trying to tell us about the rock. And yet it is able to strike the feet of the image and break it into pieces. How? If the origins of the rock are not power, how can it act so powerful? Well, if the kingdom is about force and power, and the image is about might and power and force, what would break that? Superior might and power and force, or something not might and power and force? And so I believe it is truth and love that destroys the institutions of power over, and that is the kingdoms of this world. Would we assume that this society was familiar with the catapult or the trebuchet? With the what? The catapult or the trebuchet that are good at throwing huge rocks and breaking city walls and so on. Yes, they would have been familiar with that. And that's why I'm sure that translators put human in there. But this is not without, this is not human. Would the king have thought of the rock as coming from within the world, not from like the heavens? It's cut out from the mountain, it says. It doesn't say what that exactly which uh, god that mountain represents. It's an interesting point that mountains are always associated with gods. So, you know, they would have seen that as coming from some divine source. Exactly. But it's cut, it cuts itself out. So it does, it's not any of the ancient Near Eastern gods who have mountains or who live in mountains. So Nebuchadnezzar's graven image. Apparently Nebuchadnezzar could not forget his dream now or Daniel's interpretation of it. The dream offered only a short duration for Babylon and a shorter for himself. The more he thought about it, the more he fumed. Some statue with segments of kingdoms. So he was only the head of gold. Why not the whole statue? Think how that would increase his power. So he had one built of gold and set it up on the plain of Turin. Then he set for all the elite and administratively powerful. Not These were not the people. <coughs> these were the administrative elite. To come to the statue. Among them were Daniel's three friends. And the question, of course, is raised, where was Daniel? Well, no one knows for sure. But uh, it's likely that Nebuchadnezzar felt it unwise to bring the interpreter of his dream says he was a So, who did the image represent? And this isn't clear from the text. Was it Barduk? Was it a new deity? Or was it Nebuchadnezzar? By the way, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is said to make the image of gold. It's doubtful that he made it, actually. But he had it made. The Aramaic verb to make is related to the word for slave or servant. It shadows definitely the concept of image making and, and in the realm of the gods where the, all Babylonians understood that they were created solely to be slaves of the gods. The Bible, Hebrew Bible shies away from describing that to the worshippers of Yahweh. It can be there in certain places, but certainly not in Genesis 1, um, where not to be slaves of God. So I'm used to the idea that the different parts of the image represented kingdoms, not kings. Are those synonymous in the thinking of the time? 
Yeah, I would say yes. Uh, because Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, you are this head of gold. And then he goes on to say, and after you a kingdom will come. The king and kingdom are all intermixed. So, um, we've always assumed that the image represented Nebuchadnezzar himself, and that's a possibility, but the text nowhere says who the image represents. Both the reporters of the Hebrews' discipline, disobedience, and the Hebrews themselves link it to the gods of Nebuchadnezzar. <coughs> and here's how it's worded. At this time, certain Chaldeans came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These paid no heed to you, O King. They do not serve your gods, and they do not worship the golden statue you have set up. This is called the rebellion. Right? I mean, isn't that how we would say it? I use that term for God reason. There are rebellions going on right now, right? Uh, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods and you do not worship the golden statue that I have set up? He nowhere claims it as referring to him. So this seems to be a deity. So I call it the rebellion or speaking truth to power. Uh, Shadrach and Meshach, and notice how rebellious this really is, respectfully rebellious. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to present a defense to you in this matter. If our God whom we serve, the word there actually means to venerate and fear, they do not ascribe something to their God. We don't say serve our God as, as slaves. We fear, we venerate, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire out of your hand, that is your power. O king, let him deliver us. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your God, and we will not worship, literally pay homage to. This is like the weakest verb for worshiping a deity because it is used of respect to an officer of the king, no matter how holy that officer is. So we will not pay homage. We won't even give him a time of day. We won't even be respectful to him. The golden statue of Sedeq. Note the veneration of Yahweh versus the refusal to pay homage to the statue. So this is pretty solid rebellion and pretty severe disobedience. So what did the three Jews want God to do? I went through some psalms. It didn't take me long to find some verses. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoers. Seek out their wickedness till you find none. On the wicked he will rain coals of fire and sulfur. That's appropriate with the kill. He did attempt seven times hotter. Uh, may the Lord cut off all the flattering lips of the tongue that makes great boasts. Rise up, O Lord, confront them, overthrow them. By your sword, deliver my life from the wicked. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the days of his wrath. And he will shatter heads over all the wide earth. Can't you just hear the praying those songs? <laughs> at this point? I, uh, some years ago, they asked the faculty women, quite a few years ago now, to have a week of prayer abuse. And we, were each, we decided as a group that we would each pick a person in the Bible to, to uh, talk to. And my choice was uh, Jacob and his night of wrestling. And Ginger Ketting picked that one before I got to it. So, uh, I had to pick another character, and I decided my second choice would be the three Hebrews, but of course I didn't want to talk about all three, so I picked Hananiah. That was uh, actually fortuitous, because uh, I found out only recently that my name, Jean, is from Hebrew. It's because it's the variant of John. It's from Yohan. Hananiah is related to Yohanan. Hananiah. means God is gracious. Uh, so I, I did this story. I told it first person as though I were Hananiah. And I had Hananiah praying all kinds of dastardly things against Nebuchadnezzar. Smite him dead, Lord. Break his arm, you know, etc. So I, I had these songs. And, and I, the reason I did that, I wanted to heighten what God actually does. 
So the three men with their clothing are thrown into the kiln, heated seven times hotter than normal. Those who threw them in died in the fire. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up quickly. He said to the counselors, Was it not three men that we threw bound in the fire? They said, True, O king. He replied, But I see four men unbound, walking in the middle of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the fourth has the appearance of a god. The Aramaic is literally son of the gods. When it's son of something, it is that. It's like being a godly or something like that. So the key to me here is to recognize that instead of smiting Nebuchadnezzar for his blasphemy, God himself comes in human forms form and joins his loyal ones in the fire. So here's the meaning of the story as I unpack it. When faced with opposition, God walks with us in the fire. This is a God who shares with us our suffering. He does not retaliate against those who mistreat his worshipers. He does not completely stop them with the use of force. Grace, humility, revelation. This is a revelation to Nebuchadnezzar. Peace form the modes that he uses. This is not a God of might and power or authoritarian will. His only use of power is that of deliverance. And I ask if this might have been a foreshadowing of the incarnation of Jesus who comes down, becomes a vulnerable baby. Then I, I can't always resist asking this question what would it have been like to talk with God in the fire? I think I would have heeded Nebuchadnezzar's call to come out. I said, no, I want to stay and have a conversation. Does Nebuchadnezzar get the message? Nebuchadnezzar said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. They disobeyed the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that utters blasphemy against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruin. For there is no other god who is able to deliver in this way. Didn't get the message. Note that the king cannot bring himself to say God delivered them, but uses the word angel. Also, he firmly prohibits blasphemy. He does not command worship. Interestingly, this story, in part, lies behind Revelation 13. So now we're going to move more quickly. Uh, Daniel 4, the king loses his mind to the belief that he built Babylon as a royal capital by my mighty power and for my glorious majesty. He is restored to his throne when he learns humility before Daniel's God. Again, the theme of power versus humility. Uh, Daniel 5, Belshazzar has the Jerusalem temple's drinking vessels brought out during his feast so that his family members could drink from them. He then praises the God that he worships. The God of those vessels responds by writing a message on the wall. Very Babylonian, writing a message on the wall. Uh, that night, Belshazzar loses his power, slain by the advancing armies of Cyrus. Daniel 6, God delivers Daniel from the lions to honor his worship in true kingly fashion. Darius hands over Daniel's enemies to the lions who eat them. Now we come to the section of Daniel that has to do with Daniel's visions. I'm going to deal with only snippets of these sections. Daniel 7, 9-10 portrays a judgment scene over the arrogance of the little foreign who will speak words against God and act abusively and attempt to, attempts to change times in the law. A thousand thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand are a part of this judgment scene. The court sits in judgment and the records are open. And I maintain God runs an open court, not a closed court, with representatives of the universe watching and involved. So there's discussion between God and the whole universe, in a sense, through this open court. Daniel 7, 13-14 relates how one like a human being comes to the Ancient One as presented before him. To him is given dominion and glory and kingship that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. This is speaking Babylonian, right? Even though the words are Hebrew. Uh, his kingdom will never pass away or be destroyed. It would seem then that this human one, usually referred to as the Son of Man in most versions, 
case you're a little lost. <laughs> uh, it would seem that this human one is co-presider over the court. Daniel 7, 23 to 27 depicts in more detail the activities of the little horn. This little horn is judged and his dominion is taken away. Then the kingship and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the holy ones of the Most High, and their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey them. By the way, this is a chapter that has the four beasts. Isn't it interesting that God reveals the kingdoms as beasts, particularly beasts of prey? To me, this is, this is suggesting that all kingdoms of human beings are abusive. So, in this passage, the abuser is put out of power. The kingdom goes to the people of the Most High. So, it would seem that the human one receives the kingdom only to give it to those who follow him, who aren't like the kingdoms of the world. Something about the you talk about the human one, the idea of the son of uh, son of man actually being man and Adam are interchangeable words. There, the word Adam man, I think, could it also be translated son of Adam, which would be referring to uh, the restoration. But, well, it, that's the, that's why it's translated human one in the version I use, which is the common English Bible. Uh, because the emphasis is on this this one who is in, who is a heavenly being is human, so he's our representative in the court, right, and and he's also co-presiding. Yeah, I guess what I'm thinking is more like the covenantal structure of the creation order is still intact, even though uh, the Jews are not in Israel; they don't have the kingdom; they still have something that they're representing. Yeah, that's what it's supposed to be there. Now we come to Daniel 8. Like the four beasts of Daniel 7, there are two beasts here, like the little horn of Daniel 7. The little horn exhibits similar qualities. So this is probably a parallel vision. Uh, additionally, it casts some of the hosts and the stars of heaven to the ground and walks on them. It also throws truth to the ground. The result is that the heavenly sanctuary is trampled. The good news is that at a specified time, the sanctuary will be cleansed or restored to its rightful. State. And this is how I see it fitting the themes of Daniel. The beasts, that is the kingdoms, and the horn, that is the kings, of this earth tend to make us think that God is like that. This has muddied God's holy place and besmirched his character. But in these days, God will reveal the truth that he is not like the beasts. He is like the human one, Jesus so the rest of Daniel deals with Daniel's prayer for his people, the prophecy of when the Messiah will come, the king after king after king, which we have tried to understand and maybe somewhat do. Finally, within the context of an unmitigated time of anguish, deliverance will come from God's people and with it a resurrection of the dead. Daniel 12, 2 is the clearest statement of the resurrection of the dead in all of the Hebrew Bible. Minor theme in Daniel, character, not power. And I think you can go through that list. We've, we've pretty much summarized it already. Um, and I just want to leave you with this summary. Adventists have long been preoccupied with the beasts of Daniel and Revelation. Consequently, we have missed some of the most significant points that Daniel makes. The theme that lives and breathes in Daniel is that God is not like the beasts, the kingdoms of this world. God does not use kingdom-like power, dominion, and might to run his kingdom. God's kingdom is the kingdom of truth and love. It is a transparent kingdom where moral worth and value surround the brutality of war, rage, supremacy, and control. His kingdom is forever, because only a kingdom of love and truth does not implode in self-destruct. Love never ends. Questions? Observations? Yes, John. I thought in the first century, the Christians, looking at the story of Daniel and, and taking great confidence in how God delivered Daniel from the lions, and yet so many were killed in the Colosseum by lions. And struggling with the, the hope and then what they had to face. I mean, it's, it's a powerful testimony to Christianity to surviving and getting beyond 
that terrible devastation and because there was certainly had to have been many people that were just God didn't save my family. God didn't didn't save us from the end. Whether they had to watch or I don't know how many Christians were in the Coliseum watching and praying and hoping for deliverance and then having to witness just the opposite. And it's just um, we, we fall back on these stories of, of how God was in the past and hope that there was application directly you know, for our life today. And, and there is no... To me, that's why I have to look at Daniel a little differently than just his rescue mode. I have to look at him as something like <coughs> So he's in that Colosseum. He's suffering with everyone who suffers that death. And he has them in his hands. He will deliver them, but not right then. So I, I, I just, I don't see it, I don't see Daniel so much about deliverance as about God and how he does not use might and force to deliver. He does not use uh, the methods of the kings and the kingdoms to run his universe. So, so I see a God who suffers with us, basically, more than I see a God who is going to absolutely deliver. Well, the stories we tell the children. Oh, I know. Bible stories, and the, all the, I remember the little sandbox that we used long ago, you know, all the lions, and here's Daniel, and, and, and how, you know, it was just a wonderful, um, well, you need you need uh, that as a base when you're a child to give them the other story would depress them and, and probably distance them from God. So you need I, I when I was in Hong Kong I taught a great number of non-Adventist students mostly a non-Christian and when some of them decided they wanted to become Christians Adventists I studied with them. And one of the things they have difficulty with is why God doesn't always answer our prayers. And as I started unpacking their ability to be close to God, their ability to have a relationship with Him, they had absolutely no uh, time in their lives when they were young when God did save them from something, and when God did deliver them from something. Uh, so they had no basic childlike faith to build on they were starting from scratch. So it was a much bigger hurdle for them than to adjust our thinking as we get older uh, to a God who does not always deliver us, but who suffers with us, who feels it with us, and is there to comfort us as we go through suffering. How much of Daniel is history and how much of it is prophecy? I'm, I'm, uh, I'm staying away from that question. <laughs> It does seem very Babylonian. It does reflect Babylonian culture a lot. I would say that. Can you answer the question as to why the book is structured the way it is? Six chapter story, six chapters vision. Was do you think Daniel was the one who structured it that way? I have no idea. That, that's because you don't you don't tell Nebuchadnezzar who trounced them. And there was this kingdom, the mighty kingdom before you, that was uh, diamonds, you know. <laughs> yes, except that Nebuchadnezzar could beat them. Yeah. And I would think he would kind of like to. But then if he mounted, he would have been over it, right? And he wasn't Yeah, he wouldn't want it over it. That's right. You mentioned this is dealing more with character than the movement. She was saying, the Bible does say that if you save your life, you will lose it. If you lose your life, you will find it. You save it. It's dealing with, when you lose your life with Christ, people who gave their lives talk more about Christ than themselves. So they find life. And those who want to keep their life themselves will lose it. There's something good about it too. 
Well, and actually later on uh, into the third, well, I should say second, second century Christians uh, wanted to be beheaded and, and hanged and, and martyred. Just martyred because they thought it would give them a lot of money to get to heaven. But it can be abused, both of them. So it's, it's important to keep a happy level of understanding. Any other questions or options? Because for me, as I think about all this, it's, it all comes back to who is the God? Who is the God that we trust? And what is, like going back to character, you know? And, and because it comes back to trusting. Even if it doesn't turn out how we want it to be, how we didn't get things to go, well, I don't know why, but who do I trust? Yeah, trust. To me, I can't trust someone who has a lot of power over me. But I can trust someone who walks with me in fire. He's not. He is not going to the fire fight, but he's not going to. But do we really like that power? Do we really like that type of the kingdom? Well, I think. I think what happened if you follow the history of the Christian Church. First, they were willing to lay down, lay down their lives. They considered it an honor to be able to suffer with Jesus. Uh, and yes, they must have wrestled with Daniel and all of those sects and why God has delivered them. But ultimately, if, if you look at in the first century, particularly Peter's comments about, you know, this is what we do, we're to suffer like Jesus suffered. And then in the second century, it became such an honor that they, they coveted. In the third century, they grew weary and they began to be willing to have a little power in Constantine. This kingdom that is coming, that we really just described, I believe Judas did. That's the reason he did what he did, what he did, Judas did, because he was not willing to receive that type of kingdom. He had in his mind a different type of kingdom. Jesus was not betraying that. Well, you could say that the entire rejection of Jesus is a rejection. He's, he's, he's not like the kingdoms of the world. His kingdom is, is not the same. All of this theme is, is blazing with Jesus in the Gospels. It's, it's very permeating. I'm surprised we don't see it more clearly today. Okay, our time is up. Let's have prayer. Dear God, we thank you that you are a God who we can trust not to lord it over us, not to reduce our autonomy, not to force us into line with your will, but a God of freedom, of love, of trust, and truth. We ask that we might cling to you as you are in the days of power and force and might. We thank you for this in Jesus' name.